This summer, America's self-proclaimed toughest sheriff went to court. But this time, he was the defendant. And the practices that shaped his tough guy persona are what landed him there. Was Sheriff Joe convicted for doing his job? Sheriff Joe Arpaio was found guilty of criminal contempt in July after he failed to follow a judge's order to stop racially profiling Latinos. But you know what? I'll make a prediction. I think he's going to be just fine, okay? And then in August, President Donald Trump pardoned him. Still, Arpaio did lose his bid for re-election in 2016 after more than two decades in office. And his questionable practices may have had something to do with it. But it's possible we wouldn't have even known about them if it weren't for Ryan Gabrielson and the staff of the East Valley Tribune, a Phoenix-area newspaper that decided to dig into Joe Arpaio's immigration enforcement policies back in the late 2000s. This week, Irie's Abby Ivory Ganya talks with Ryan about his Pulitzer Prize-winning series, Reasonable Doubt. Ryan in the East Valley Tribune documented Arpaio's systematic racial profiling of Latinos and how their immigration enforcement policies got in the way of solving other crimes like sexual assault. The effects of the investigation, which began over a decade ago, are still being felt today. I'm Erin McKinstry, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. To understand the history of America's toughest sheriff, we need to go back more than a decade. In the mid-2000s, immigration was already a major issue in cities like Phoenix. Arizona was seeing a huge increase in the Hispanic population that was, for the most part, completely legal. And so some of the sort of racial transformation that has brought things into so much conflict in the country over the past 10 years, it was happening a little earlier in Phoenix, where the white population suddenly finding, you know, 40% or more of the kids in the school system were Hispanic. Minorities were fast becoming majorities in Arizona. That's Ryan Gabrielson. These days, he's a reporter at ProPublica. But in the late 2000s, Ryan was working at the East Valley Tribune, a newspaper in suburban Phoenix. Phoenix is part of Maricopa County, which covers over 9,000 square miles and is now home to more than 4 million people. The county is bigger than the state of New Jersey. And the man in charge of law enforcement? That was Joe Arpaio. As the elected sheriff, I like all the authority I can have. Arpaio's tenure as Maricopa County Sheriff started back in 1993. As sheriff, Arpaio was outspoken and unapologetic, a man of extremes. He's famous for creating Tent City, an outdoor jail where inmates wore striped jumpsuits and pink underwear. The sheriff once called it a, quote, concentration camp. He's equally known for his campaign against illegal immigrants. We'll talk more about this later, but here's what you need to know now. In 2011, a federal judge told Arpaio to stop racially profiling Latinos. But that court order didn't seem to make much of a difference, and it was back to business as usual for the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. But the minute you mention the word illegal, aliens, and everybody, everybody's getting an uproar. Fast forward to this year. 
In July, a judge found Arpaio guilty of criminal contempt of court for defying the court order, a misdemeanor punishable by up to six months in jail. And in August, President Donald Trump pardoned America's toughest sheriff. But even before he wound his way through the court system, Arpaio was already something of a household name in Phoenix. I asked Ryan how often he was being covered by the local media a decade ago. Constantly. It seemed like every day. Since he took office in 1993, he had been a spectacle machine. And unlike many controversial politicians, Sheriff Joe made himself surprisingly available to reporters. He held press conferences for reporters, television and newspaper alike, who are constantly trying to feed the beast. He was a cafeteria. Like, he just was always there to give you something to put in that hole that you had to fill. Parts of Maricopa County, like Phoenix, are diverse and fairly progressive, but the county is also heavily segregated. Many of the suburbs are more than 90% white and much more conservative. Ryan says those residents liked that America's toughest sheriff was in their backyard. But Arpaio's actions didn't really affect most residents. Areas like Scottsdale, Phoenix, Tempe, they had their own police departments. The people in Phoenix didn't have to care about what Joe Arpaio did for the most part unless they got arrested on a DUI because he wasn't their police force. And so he could be spectacle without consequence for them. Most of the coverage of Arpaio focuses on his controversial policies. He dropped the hammer. But Ryan says, in person, he was different. When we'd be in the same space, he was a gentleman. He was nice. He he would sometimes still share what he was going to say at a press conference before he got up and spoke. In 2005, Ryan was covering the Scottsdale City Council when, at one point, a council member from a neighboring town started complaining about how long it took the sheriff's office to respond to an emergency call. Scottsdale's a suburb of Phoenix, part of Arpaio's domain. And that complaint made Ryan curious. Well, I wonder what response time uh, handling of uh, those kinds of property crimes up there look like for the sheriff's office. And so I requested just basic data on the number of cases opened, their clearance numbers, a breakdown of the handling of property crimes in this one jurisdiction. And the sheriff's office got back to me saying they didn't have summary statistics. Ryan didn't buy it. Most major law enforcement agencies voluntarily report some of this data to the FBI. So we pressed them again. Are you sure you don't have this data? I was assuming they did because I, you know, every law enforcement agency of any significance generally does. I was sure there was a starting point. And they got back and said, no, we actually don't have that. You'll have to come up here and go through our individual case files. It's hard to imagine a law enforcement agency that at the time served nearly 4 million people wasn't keeping data on the number of cases that are opened and closed. But that's exactly what the sheriff was telling Ryan. To get the numbers, he'd have to go to the sheriff's office and look at each case, one by one. Ryan went to go look at the records, but only for a day. The Tribune didn't have time to launch into a full investigation, but he planned to keep an eye on the sheriff's department. That sort of left a mark on me, especially going through the case files. Like they aren't, They're not entering all of these into any sort of centralized system. They don't know what's happening with their police force. They don't know on any larger scale how they're doing, who they're responding to, what kind of cases are being opened, and how those cases are being handled. And so I filed that away as like, okay, if anything big happens later on with this police force, this is a point of concern. In late 2007, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office began conducting large-scale immigration sweeps. They'd go into a neighborhood where there were day laborers or just largely Hispanic neighborhoods and 
stop everything that moved, or at least that's how it felt, and ask for identification. Stop cars. I mean, it's like large checkpoint-type operations with incredible numbers. It felt like they had almost the entire sheriff's office out there. And with so many people devoted to the effort, you might think the sheriff's office was running an operation to catch and arrest high-level immigration offenders, the kingpins and coyotes. But it wasn't. Instead, members of Arpaio's human smuggling unit would pull people over on small country roads for things like a broken taillight or a minor traffic violation. But the real point of the stop was finding illegal immigrants. All of this was done without any evidence of criminal activity, which violates federal regulations meant to prevent racial profiling. More than 650 people were arrested under Arizona's human smuggling law, charged as co-conspirators in their own smuggling, and deported. Around the same time, Ryan saw a story in the Arizona Republic saying that, in many cases, the sheriff's office had stopped delivering inmates to their court appearances. They're a police force, but they are equally a jail system. They hold people, and they make sure that they get to their court date for those who haven't been convicted. It's a core function of the sheriff's office, and they weren't doing that anymore. And their explanation was, we've already burned through our overtime budget. And this was three months into the fiscal year in 2007. It seemed as if the sheriff's office had taken on a new task, looking for illegal immigrants, while cutting corners on one of its essential duties, getting the accused to court. Ryan felt it was finally time to dig into the sheriff's office. And Patty Epler, his editor at the time, Agreed. Patty was very clear, like, there are things happening, and we don't clearly understand it. There needs to be more scrutiny on the sheriff's office. Ryan started working with Paul Giblin, another reporter at the East Valley Tribune, and they developed two questions. How is the sheriff's office conducting its immigration operations, and what effect is it having on everything else it's supposed to be doing? Starting with two questions allowed them to focus their reporting on a few key areas. I think it's like, once you realize you want to do an investigation, you have to have done some preliminary reporting just to determine there's something there to investigate. I think it's the first thing you do. I mean, we we had those questions before I filed our first public records request. Ryan asked the sheriff's office for all the arrest records related to immigration violations. He was bracing for a battle, but he got access to the records in just a few weeks, and they were unredacted. Maybe the only condition the sheriff's office put on us when we were setting up shop in their conference room, going to all these arrest reports was, look, there are things in here that you're not supposed to see. Just don't take that down. The unredacted records contained everything from social security numbers to photocopies of $20 bills that were considered evidence of people paying their way to be smuggled. I was interested in the public parts. They didn't want to go through the trouble or the time, and I, and I didn't want them to either, of redacting. And so they felt it was best if they, look, here's, here's everything. Just don't make us go through it. Paul and I were more than willing to go through it for them. The paper records were just a starting point because, remember, the sheriff's office didn't have a centralized record system. To spot any trends in the case files, the reporters would have to turn the documents into a searchable database. Ryan and Paul set up shop in the conference room of the sheriff's office, which is where the files were stored, and started reading. From time to time, Arpaio would pop in. Sometimes just to say hi, other times he wanted to chat. Ryan says Arpaio was curious and liked having reporters around. He couldn't believe they wanted to go through all the records. Paul and I were coming in, and going through, I think I estimated there were probably 10,000 pages. You know, I created a form of all the different pieces of information that I would want. Ryan had seen arrest reports from the sheriff's office before. 
He knew what was being tracked, and he knew what pieces of information he needed from those reports, like location, charges, and evidence. For every single case, Paul and I would just fill out these forms about what the report said, about probable cause, about the number of the resources vested. We took down the information about every single person arrested, which deputies were involved. With each form, their database grew. They saw staffing levels and personnel assignments, budget information, response times, and arrest rates. They began to understand what it meant for the sheriff's office to become an immigration enforcement agency. Ryan says he wasn't expecting the sheriff's office to be so upfront with them, both in terms of access to Arpaio and in getting the records they wanted. But that's exactly what happened at the initial stage of the project. A lot of this reporting was really grinding and difficult, but... I still am amazed at how simple the first phase was. Like, that, that was the part that I, I fully expected a you know, month-long legal battle, that they did not want us to see this. But, in fact, I was 100% wrong. They believed that anything showing them arresting undocumented immigrants was good. They believed the way that they were doing it was just sort of common sense, or that the way they were doing it, it didn't matter whether it was constitutional or not because it was politically popular. What Ryan and Paul ultimately created was, at the time, the most comprehensive database of arrest records related to immigration enforcement in Maricopa County. And that database illuminated some interesting trends. Here's what they found. In 2005, before the sheriff's office got more involved in immigration enforcement, its overall arrest rate was about 10%. And the next year it collapsed to 4%. The immigration enforcement policies were so demanding that officers didn't have much time to make arrests for other crimes. Instead of searching for the person who committed a sexual assault, they were looking for any sign of probable cause to question someone about their immigration status. The policies also pushed the office into a budget crisis. Three months into their fiscal year, the office was $1.3 million over budget, mostly due to overtime. The officers were overworked, with their time and energy focused on catching illegal immigrants. So the arrest rate plummeted. And if there's a shift in arrest rate from 10% to 4%, that's going to hurt people. And there are going to be cases of it. And, and I'm going to be able to find those just by good old-fashioned reporting. The Tribune had ready access to the sheriff's office and Arpaio for the first part of the investigation. But as the reporting progressed, things began to change. Joe Arpaio loved talking to reporters. That didn't surprise me that we got access to Joe. I was initially surprised when we got access to the immigration arrest records. While I was surprised that we initially got immigration arrest records without a fight, that was the last thing we got without a fight. With the immigration records in hand, the team's next step was requesting emergency response and dispatch records, as well as budget documents. The sheriff's office never denied their requests outright, but they did stall. For some documents like budgets, Ryan put in requests with other government departments to try to keep things moving. But eventually, they had to get tough on Arpaio. I had to enlist the help of our managing editor to, to write letters and agitated phone calls. You know, it wasn't a full-out war, but Arizona's public records law is very clear that all of this stuff was public. They eventually got the files, but all of this dragged out the investigation. While they waited, they went out searching for the people who'd been affected by the slow response times and other problems stemming from the department's new priorities. When an armed robbery took place at a small grocery store in Maricopa County, it took deputies about 45 minutes to get to the store. 
The nearest sheriff's office was a thousand feet away. Another time, after a young girl was raped, the sheriff's office marked her case as cleared. But there was never a suspect and deputies never investigated. The case was closed a month later. Things were starting to come together. They had the data to show these problems were systemic and the people to put a face to the numbers. We spent all this time wearing out our shoe leather, talking to every law enforcement person we could find, asking them, hey, data shows this. Is this manifesting itself in real life? Pursuing public records requests. We can document what's happening. We can prove it really beyond any reasonable doubt. We have human sources. We have records. We had the whole thing. the investigation, Ryan was straightforward with his sources in the sheriff's office about how things were going. At the beginning, I made clear, like, we don't know what the story is. I mean, I was very candid. Here's the questions we're asking. It's like, how are you, how are you guys doing the immigration operation? And, and, and what effect is it having? That was the truth. And it was shaped by the reporting. As the story progressed, he'd check back in with the public information officer and explain what he'd found, as well as the records he needed next. I would make sure they were aware of what we were doing and what we were finding. Looking back, Ryan says it's this investigation that helped him develop his strategy with sources. I was so scared of the sheriff's office shutting down access at some point. Some investigative reporters believe you don't tell the, the subject of your investigation almost anything until you know basically everything because the concern is that they're going to cut you off. My fear of being cut off drove me to do the opposite. It, it drove me to be in fairly constant communication with the sheriff's office, not only to get things, but to make sure, like, look, if I'm finding something here that's wrong, I want you to have every opportunity to let me know. The steady stream of updates kept the sheriff's office talking. No matter what, I was being honest with them. There wasn't this long period of silence that made them uncomfortable. Even if they didn't like what they were hearing, they were hearing it from me. Sharing early and often with sources is something Ryan has continued to do, even after finishing the Arpaio investigation and leaving the Tribune. Regardless, ever since then, I have never been able to get behind the idea of don't tell the people you're reporting on that you're reporting on them. I believe in constantly being in touch, and it has served me well. In July of 2008, the East Valley Tribune published a package of stories called Reasonable Doubt. The series detailed how the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office had started an aggressive immigration enforcement campaign that led to a drop in arrest rates, a rapid emptying of the overtime budget, and improper investigation of sexual assaults. The Sheriff's Office didn't publicly address the story until three weeks later. The Sheriff's Office issues a very brief statement, essentially accusing us of making multiple factual errors does not cite a single one. We reached back out to them saying, hey, if we've made a mistake, please, please, please tell us and provide the documentation and you know, we'll, we will fix things. Even as we were published, the day we published the first part, I got on the phone with the head of investigation and said, okay, so here's what we've just said about you. Every number in it, I had, I had quadruple checked, but I was like, is this right still? Pleading with them, if we're wrong, tell us. And they never provided us a single error. The same year the story ran, Sheriff Joe Arpaio was up for re-election and looking to get his fifth four-year term. Ryan says there was concern from the sheriff's press office that the investigation was an attempt to boot Arpaio from his seat. 
But that wasn't the paper's goal. Ryan says they would have done this story even if it wasn't an election year. We knew that Joe Arpaio was going to win. Like, long before we published, Paul and I had had a conversation like, it almost doesn't matter what we find. Joe Arpaio is going to win re-election. That wasn't the impact we were looking for. The impact we were looking for was people have to be aware of the cost of what is being done. Arpaio won re-election in 2008 and again in 2012. Still, Ryan believes the investigation had an impact in other ways. For starters, it changed the media climate around Arpaio. Daily, positive, oh, look at this quirky sheriff coverage that had been the norm, that was much less acceptable. There was now direct evidence this isn't just conservative liberal, this is abandoning sex crime victims and some of them young girls. This was serious stuff, this was unacceptable, and there's proof of it. I detected a a marked shift in the the willingness to challenge Arpaio by the press and the type of coverage he got. Nearly 10 years later, Ryan's still a reporter, although now he's at ProPublica, and Joe Arpaio is still in the news. But in the 2016 election, Sheriff Joe lost. In November, even as Donald Trump won Arizona, Maricopa County unseated Joe Arpaio. I never thought I would see that. He'd served as sheriff of Maricopa County for 24 years. The Tribune's investigation started with a small anomaly, something that could have been overlooked. The real difficult piece of evidence that got us going was they stopped delivering inmates their court date. They had a real financial problem. And that financial problem was tied to something much larger. That served as a great reporting lesson, one reporters can use no matter what they're investigating. Pay attention to warning signs. When there is dysfunction in one part of an organization and it's unchecked dysfunction, like blowing through an overtime budget three months, that can be a pretty good indicator of dysfunction throughout an organization. Look for those signs of fraud or not just fraud misconduct, but unchecked, where something is not only like wrong, but like kind of crazy wrong. And it's surprisingly easy to overlook those types of things. And this applies not just to government agencies, but really to any kind of large institution. Ryan suggests asking a simple question. What is that agency supposed to be doing? We all have missions and things that we're supposed to be doing. And when somebody or a group is not serving that, and the way they're not serving it, it shows they don't have full control over what's going on, that is something to scrutinize. Effects of the investigation rippled out for years. In 2009, the East Valley Tribune won a Pulitzer Prize for the series Reasonable Doubt. In 2011, the Justice Department published a report independently documenting the sheriff's office practice of racially profiling, and it cited Ryan and Paul's investigation as evidence. That same year, The sheriff's office publicly admitted and apologized for not properly investigating sexual assaults. And last year, voters decided not to return Arpaio to office. All of this leads us back to this year, the criminal conviction and Trump's pardon. You know, and eventually this all led to a political loss that I never thought would occur, which I don't take credit for, but it's part of the larger arc. I'm not invested in seeing the downfall of Joe Arpaio by any means. I never have been. That was never what I sought or or tried to bring about. But it has been bizarre and frustrating to see the larger takeaways be lost 
in the politics of the pardon. It's interesting to see that we as a country haven't moved anywhere since the spot we were in 10 years ago. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for links to the East Valley Tribune series or more about investigating law enforcement, take a look at our episode notes. Thanks to the East Valley Tribune for letting us use sound from their interviews with Joe Arpaio. On our next episode, we talk with ProPublica's Nina Martin and NPR's Renee Montaigne about their six-month investigation into maternal deaths. We have gotten several letters from women who said, in liter- they said to us, reading this piece saved my life. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also browse our archives at ire.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review or share the show with friends. It helps us reach new listeners. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Abby Ivory-Gania reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Erin McKinstry. Podcast. Podcast.